All right, so we have been doing a series that we are ending today. Uh, I interrupted a series I had started on on the a comprehensive look at the subject of gifts in the Bible, and I'm going to restart that next week. I may just do part one over again. But I realized that we have, you know, Cotty just came back. I realized we have a couple first-time visitors, uh, or at least one or so. So um, today's the last part of it, but I'm going to uh, give myself eight minutes to review what uh, we covered so far. So in part one, we were talking about things we must know regarding the subject of spiritual warfare. It's not a subject that gets talked much about. I really can't go into the whole history of the Enlightenment and how Western culture has has progressively thrown off Christianity and especially the hardest things to deal with in Christianity, such as the fact that there is a spiritual realm. You have a spirit. There are angelic spirits. There are demonic spirits. And, and we have become uh, what 1 Corinthians 2 talks about, the, that the natural-minded person cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And we have been kind of... Uh, become skeptical about the spiritual side of life. And um, the problem is, is the Bible presents that as a very real side of life. So there's some things you need to know about spiritual warfare. Ignorance of the truth won't help you uh, because actually if you don't know these things, you, you'll still be subject to them. So the first thing I want you to know is that there are, there are seasons of more or less spiritual warfare. Anytime you uh, get in a situation where you potentially could go forward in the Lord, such as the Lord is bringing you to a, a, a Christian group that has some new ideas for you, that you will have spiritual warfare that wants you to evaluate all things based on what you're used to. The Bible never evaluates anything based on what you're used to. The Bible always evaluates things on Scripture. So in, in Acts in 17, it says the Bereans, the people from Berea, were more noble-minded than the people from Thessalonica because they searched the Scriptures daily to see if the new things they were being presented by Paul were, were true. So um, God always wants to present you with new things. Secondly, anytime you have kind of a breakthrough in your relationship with God, whereby you encounter the Holy Spirit in a greater way, you will come into more spiritual warfare. Thirdly, anytime you purpose in your heart to reach out in, in a team effort, in, in a God-given plan, to share the gospel, to, to disciple young Christians or people who don't know the Lord at all, and reach out in that way, you'll encounter a great deal more spiritual warfare. The nature of the modern church is that uh, we are constantly pressured by the pace of American life, by all kinds of things, to put all of our financial resources, all of our time, all of our best leaders into maintaining present programs and present buildings. So anytime you purpose to go do something like Kids Rock Club or go start sharing the gospel at Wright State, there will be all kinds of spiritual warfare trying to separate as many people from that mission as possible. And uh, the, Satan's goal is to, is to get you to consume all your efforts internally. So 
I need to, I'm getting some more water. I shouldn't be chewing on ice while I'm talking. They're bringing me some more water. Um, so some things we need to know about spiritual warfare is there are schemes of Satan. And there are seasons where there's more spiritual warfare, especially if you've purposed with a team of people to go on the offensive. Uh, that's way more dangerous than if you have your own plan to go on the defense, offensive and you're going on the offensive the way you want to do it or something. Uh, I think Jason's already doing it. So um, we talked about how there were three inextricably intertwined enemies of God's church. They are what the Bible calls our sin nature or our old man, the Adamic nature, sometimes called the flesh. The world system, sometimes called this present evil age and other names for it in the Bible. And there is a satanic kingdom. And there is three types of beings in Satan's kingdom. Uh, by the way, the, the first three, your sin nature, the world system, and Satan's kingdom, they're all inextricably intertwined. Like the way demon spirits tempt you is they tempt you by the sin nature that you have. They're, they're always inextricably intertwined. Some people want to say, go through deliverance and have that solve all their problems. That will never happen. <laughs> that will, might, might give you a great deal of freedom and relief. There's a place for that. But uh, that doesn't uh, bypass the normal Christian disciplines, uh, in, in the, nor does it bypass uh, crucifying your flesh or anything like that. Three types of beings in Satan's kingdom include Satan himself, who's called the adversary. Satan means adversary. Uh, the word devil means slanderer or accuser. He's called the serpent, the dragon, the prince of the power of the air, Beelzebul, which means lord of the flies in, in the passage Larry read. He's not omniscient, omnipresent, or eternal. or a, He doesn't have any of God's divine attributes. He's not all-knowing. However, and nor is he everywhere. He's a limited being. He's opposite God in his purpose and his character, and so are all the demons of his kingdom and so forth, but they're not opposite God in power, wisdom, ability, or so forth. They are, in fact, no match to our God in any way, shape, or form. That's important because people, people want to... Uh, you know, Satan's goal is to first get you to underestimate the spiritual dimension and be naturally minded. If he loses that battle and your eyes start getting open to the fact that there really are demons and so forth, then he wants to kind of go, boo! And, and uh, you know, like uh, to get you to overestimate him. You know, so many, many uh, person has experienced some sort of fear of demons or something the first, when they re begin to realize that that's real. That's why most churches don't talk about them. But Paul, you know, whether I know that it loses people sometimes to talk about some of the things in the Bible that most churches are trying to ignore today. But Paul said that he would not shrink back from declaring all things according to God's will that would be profitable. And the truth of the matter is you can't hide your head in the sand and pre pretend that there is no such thing as spiritual warfare. Does that make sense? You can't pretend that it doesn't exist. Thank you. So, uh, last week we talked about there are three battlegrounds where this takes place. Spiritual warfare takes place in heavenly places, 
I don't have time to develop that. We read some verses about that in Ephesians 6. It takes place on the earth. It takes place in your minds. The main place of our own spiritual warfare is in our minds. Um, then we began, to, uh, we looked in the kind of second part of this series on the fact that all of the enemy's schemes and strategies, all of his attacks in our life come out of his nature. You know, someone, you can't do something that's not within your nature to do. Jesus said either make the tree bad and its fruit bad or the tree good and its fruit good. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit nor a bad tree produce good fruit. So every every scheme of the devil, every wile of Satan comes out of his the, the, the things that the Bible reveals about him, which is, first of all, that he's prideful and he wants to tempt you with pride. He's rebellious and he wants to tempt you to do your own thing. He's unbelieving. He wants to tempt you to be natural-minded. He's a divider. He wants to he wants to separate you from whoever God wants to use you in your life. And you can even be in a good church, but still be kind of mostly doing your own thing. Uh, he wants to to make you fearful, but God has not given us a spirit of fear. He's a liar. He's a liar from the beginning. Jesus called him a liar, the the devil, liar, and the father of lies. And he's a murderer. He's been a murderer from the beginning. He was involved when Cain killed Abel. Now, uh, so today we got into, on the. this is basically, uh, since John moved yesterday, we, we had talked last week about I'm taking his spot today. He's getting a week off. So I gave half the message at 9.30. So those of you who kind of missed 9.30, missed, missed half the message. Turn over to the second side of your page. And uh, you, you really should get the, if you, did, if you missed the first part, you really need to get the, the part about temptation and how it works. Because temptation is a very needful thing. You will never grow in the Lord until you thank God for temptation and use it wisely. Temptation is God's gift to you. And uh, you, need, you need it. So... Um, and as I often say, I can withstand anything except temptation. Uh, we looked at four ways to overcome temptation, and, and Satan is actually called the tempter in several places in the Bible. And again, all of his satanic angels, which are one kind of spirit, and the demonic spirits are a different kind of spirit. We developed that in the first message, if you want to go back and study that. But all of them take on his nature and his purposes. But they're not to be feared because they're they're just creatures. The only fear the Bible endorses is in Psalm 19. It says the fear of the Lord uh, it endures forever. Fear of the Lord is a good fear. So we looked at conviction versus condemnation. Many people struggle with that. And we started talking about the phalanx principle. Jesus said uh, in Matthew 26, 31, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For I have written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be, shall be scattered. Now, in ancient times, um, the Hittites, the Babylonians, uh, the Medes, the Persians, they primarily had a type of fighting where everyone would kind of line up with their swords and their spears, and they would charge against each other and so forth. Along came a guy called Alexander the Great. He was the son of Philip of Macedon, and he was raised... Uh, he, uh, Philippians, uh, his name, Philip, Philippi is named after Philip of Macedon. 
he was the king of Macedonia, which is a, which was one of the city states, what's called the police, Greek police, one of the city states in Greece. And he, uh, Philip, set about to raise his son to conquer the world. He had uh, he had uh, him tutored by a guy named Aristotle. Some of you might know uh, Socrates from Bill and Ted, but maybe you don't know Aristotle. But uh, Socrates was uh, was. Uh, a philosopher who influenced both Plato and Aristotle. They were kind of disciples of Socrates, who's really Socrates, of course. I hope you know that. Hopefully you know that. But uh, uh, again, so um, Aristotle was, was, was Alexander the Great's tutor, and he was raised to be a military conqueror. He set off at about the age of 19 to conquer the world. And he started in what's today Greece. I wish I, we, uh, I should do more with uh, PowerPoints and so forth. But if, hopefully you can, can picture the Mediterranean world. Hopefully you have a little bit of geography. But he conquered all of what's today Turkey, Pakistan, all the way to India. He conquered all of Northern Africa, all of what today is Iraq, Syria, um, Israel, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and on, on over to what today is Libya. Okay, now he did this all, and then and he died when he was thirty. He wasn't a slacker, I guess, but uh, he did it for, by by one particular thing. He created a, a new type of battle called or a new type of battle strategy called a phalanx, and a phalanx uh, was a very disciplined troop situation that where there was a, a row of of soldiers who would interlock with each other. They would actually sometimes lock their arms together, but they stood tight together and they had a shield that was both people's shield and they had a sword or a spear that was both people's sword or spear. And they, the idea was if you couldn't break through the first row, you could never win. And the, this phalanx would just mow down the armies. Now, people read their Old Testament and they go, how could there have been uh, 38,000 Philistines killed and, and, and uh, the Israelites lost 27. Because it's hand-to-hand combat. If you don't know any much about military strategy, if you think two armies come together and there's hand-to-hand combat, well, they'll probably have about equal number of casualties. Not so. The first to break ranks gets creamed. This is why the spiritual warfare in the, in the church in the last 150 years has been to, to get the church to have the wrong vision. Because if you're going the wrong direction, if you don't understand what God wants to do in terms of, of liberating, how can the church, the, you know, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates are the enemy's means of defense. But if the enemy can get the church to not even be attacking, if the church is retreating, it can't win. It's getting, and, and it's why, why if, you, if you study our culture, the last big move of God in America that really affected the whole culture was called the Great Awakening. And it was 20 years before our war for independence. Now, because of loss of vision of what the church is supposed to be and where it's going, Every move of God in America since then has had less impact on the culture, even though in many cases it's affected greater numbers. Because if you don't know where the battle is, you can't win. You know, 
Ohio State beat Wisconsin last night. And I can guarantee you, if Ohio State had thought the game was in Wisconsin and showed up there, they wouldn't have won. <laughs> right? You can't win if you're not in the right paddle. And uh, that's really, been, that's really the, the real spiritual warfare that's against the church is that 99% of Christians are fighting the wrong battles. So, in the phalanx principle, the, what happened was, is these, these rows became so disciplined, the second row, entire purpose was to make sure the first row didn't break. And the third row's purpose was to make sure the second row didn't break. And he just mowed down his enemies from nation to nation. No one could stand against this thing called the phalanx. Now, the Bible has this principle all through it. Satan's primary attack is one, to get leaders to fall. I was talking to a very tragic man just two nights ago, an alcoholic man who came here to the building looking for help and so forth. And he talked about how, you know, his life started with his mom having an affair with the 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 uh, Pentecostal pastors, uh, well, the pastor or whatever, and so forth. You know, um, what's happened more and more is that with all our division and different things like that, everything is about building one kingdom. I, I would encourage you, don't ever be a part of any group where one guy is like the superstar. You know, one of the things we've worked very hard at here. And I, I don't even like the fact that I'm teaching both messages today. We've worked very hard at having, you know, different worship leaders, different teachers, different disciplers, and, and as, as quick as we can raise up mature people, releasing them to do stuff. You know, um, Satan's goal is strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Do you know that the number one thing you should pray for we went through this in the first service, so I kind of need to move on quick. But pray for all the leaders of the various ministries. The Grays with Kids Rock and Whiz Kids. John and, and Emily, with who's he's the main Bible teacher in our church, formulating the vision. He, we've asked him to even do a series coming up that what it means to be a member of Grace Christian Fellowship that he'll be doing probably in January or something. I don't know when you're planning to do that, but we're working on that. You know, there's... Uh, there's all there's all kinds of, of spiritual warfare directed towards uh, Greg and Catherine because Greg goes to the right state and shares the gospel. Simple as that. Larry is starting a ministry to, of reading to kids over here. Pray for the people who, and if you're in their ministry, like if you're a Kids Rock person, then especially pray for the leaders of the Kids Rock. If you're a right state person, pray for the right state leaders. We are already working on raising up other leaders. Jason and Carla lead the right state thing. I couldn't be doing what I'm doing on a daily basis if they weren't doing what they're doing with the flyers and the, and the Tuesday night meetings and the, having the tables and all that. Now, the second way he'll come at the strike the shepherd, sheep will scatter works is this. What are... Most of our uh, most people under thirty today have have been kind of damaged in the in the concept of of spiritual authority. 
Our government leaders have let us down. Every day, every week now in the news, there's some teacher that had sex with their kids. I think everyone pretty much knows. I saw I saw this PBS special about how uh, how people go to, to to Washington now to become rich. Both parties uh, go to Washington to be seduced by wealth and riches and fame, and they are both very lost spiritually. Every Democrats, Republicans, they're in trouble. Their spirit, if, you, if the blind lead the blind, they'll both fall into a pit. Our, our fathers have left us. Our homes have broken. And we fear, we fear God's remedy for us. But Jesus said, you will not see me again until you can say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know what? God has a husband and wife to, to heal your life. It's called discipleship. It's called shepherding. It's called. It's in the Bible. If you didn't grow up with a really godly father and mother that really loved each other and really so forth, there there's some stuff that needs to happen in your life. And you'll the the thing you'll most want to do is 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 do your own thing. Let me Jesus. Think about when Jesus said this to, in Matthew in the middle of his covenant law sending his, Israel. He says, you will not see me again. That means you won't perceive me. You've, you've, he's saying, Israel, you've lost your connection with God altogether. You don't know him. And you won't know me again. You won't perceive me until you can say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm telling you that to the degree God wants to use somebody in your life, to that degree you'll have spiritual warfare against them. And the primary way that spiritual warfare works is he's a slanderer. He's an accuser of the brethren. The reason we walk in plurality of leadership and have very high standards of knowledge and integrity in our leadership and so forth is to try, try to give Satan less that he could get a hand on. You know, that's why in the Bible, one of the qualifications for an elder is they have to be above reproach. You know, we, I'm, I thank God that we have three eldership couples in this church that really live a life that is above reproach. And we are trying to work behind the scenes with other people to get them in that type of maturity where they're completely above reproach. That's so important. So that if Satan has an accusation, it's false. Now, with that, let's go into the whole thing that a kingdom divided uh, cannot stand. Larry read us some verses, Revelation 12.10 calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. Remember this principle. Whatever is darkness is where he can work. If you have a problem in your, with your husband and wife, the Bible says don't let the sun go down on your anger. There's not going to be a situation where you don't have a beef with your spouse sometimes. You'll never get to that place. I, I really get scared when I'm doing premarital counseling and the, and the couple tells me, no, we don't fight. Well, then I want to teach you how to. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, at the end, of, uh, you know, great fight, great fight. <laughs> you have to learn to fight wisely and redemptively. You have to learn how to build bridges through your, for, through, as iron sharpens iron, so one, one, no, one man sharpens another. If someone's not too committed in relationships or too involved, they never grow very far. 
iron sharpens iron. I don't like, honestly, one of the principles of leadership is I don't ever raise up someone that I haven't had some really good fights with. And, and, and seeing that they can fight maturely. And it, I'm low on time, but so many of us don't do this. Listen, verses like, don't let the sun go down on your anger. You should have that memorized. It's in Ephesians 4, I think 19. When you say, Hebrews 12, 25, see to it. In other words, God is saying to you, your responsibility is to see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and by it many be defiled. Now, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, if you're presenting your offering to God, in other words, don't even worship, don't even tithe, don't, don't even pray till you get reconciled to your brother. That's how urgent it is. Now, we'll still take your tithes, <laughs> but we'll exhort you to get reconciled to your brother today. Not next week. Most of, the pro most of the lack of progress of the body of Christ is that people don't live that. They got problems with their pastor, problems with their brother, problems with someone they're working with, kids rock with or whatever, and they don't talk it through. So let me quickly tell us the shootout principle one last time. Not one last time, one more time. You, you got to get this, okay? There's four things that can happen when, when you have a problem with a brother or sister. Number one, neither of you shoot at each other. In other words, you just hold it to yourself. Then it festers and a root of bitterness grows up and you're in rebellion against God when that happens. You're actually, you're actually telling God, keep your distance, take a hike. I don't want anything to really do with following you. I want a lot, of, I'm still gonna go to church and be religious, but I don't want you to be my Lord because you told me to get right with my brother or sister. And I don't want to do that because it's painful. That's really what's happening. Now, mo that's not a popular message. You're not going to get that kind of a teaching in a, in a big church or something like that. Uh, but, but the truth is that's what causes marriages to crumble, businesses to crumble, and churches to divide, is not living that. And then... There's all sorts of reasons for not going and having a conflict. And they're all, they're all wrong. If you read Matthew 5 and Matthew 18, the one who sins is supposed to go first, and the one who's been sinned against goes first. So if you've been sinned against, you're supposed to go. If you've sinned against someone, you're supposed to go. So if, they don't, if you don't run into each other and bump heads on the way to get it reconciled, somebody's rebelling against God. Whoever gets there first is obeying God first. And then you, you have to, you, the, the, the thing you have to do is you have to say, well, I was offended when this happened. Or sometimes I'll just go and say, I'm a little insecure in what you think about me. <laughs> let's, get, let's talk about this. Okay, so the first thing is nobody is, nobody is going. It is inevitable You've got to hear this. When you do that, you still have the, the problem inside, and you will spread it to others in the body of Christ. And you will cause all sorts of damage to God's purposes. 
Christian ministries like crisis pregnancy centers or all kinds of spiritual ministries are damaged this way. You'll still have it and you'll tell someone, you'll go home and tell your spouse or you're, you know, somebody you feel like will is sympathetic to, you'll tell them what a louse pastor so-and-so is or how unfair this teacher was or whatever. That's the first possibility is no one confronts the other, no one's shooting at each other. The second possibility is that someone is is shooting and saying, well, you really offended me when you didn't come, you promised you'd do this, but you never didn't come through. And, you know, I thought I could count on you, but whatever and so forth. And then the other person's not shooting back, nor letting the bullets hit them. So the second person is like, blame shifting, excuse making, rationalizing, and so forth. That doesn't work. That's the second possibility. The third possibility is one shooting, uh, the other shooting, but nobody's letting it hit them. They're both blame shooting, excusing, making, rationalizing, or whatever. Right? Another another wrong way is one guy is shooting and the other person's like a humble bumble. Oh yeah, you're you're right. I was all wrong, and yeah, you know, you know. it's never usually that. There is a phenomenon in our culture, frankly, because of the way we grow up and socialize men, that often in marriage, it's more the man's fault than the woman's, but not always. That's why sometimes you need counseling to get to get it to work. The final, the, the the wise thing is when you're both shooting, and you're both letting yourself get shot. Oh, I see where that was insensitive. There's probably not hardly anyone that's been here more than two or three times that hasn't confronted me about something and, uh, and been right. You know, I'm the kind of guy who's got a big mouth, so I'm, you offend more when you have a big mouth. The Bible says in Proverbs, the one who keeps quiet is considered wise. <laughs> you know, so people don't talk much. They always say, wow, he's like a rock of wisdom. <laughs> he never says anything stupid. So... Do, do we get it with the shootout principle now? What the Bible tells us is if you if you shoot at each other and you just can't get it worked out, go get help. Go to the elders of the church, it says. Because the goal is to win the not the, the war, but to win the relationships so that we can re reach out. We can't we can't help the kids in these neighborhoods if we have all kinds of stuff going on internally ourselves, right? Until you get p past this shootout principle thing, you're of very limited use to God. And that's why most people, they want to be a part of three groups and they don't want to commit and, and so forth. You can't really be used of God till you, Jesus said, uh, take my yoke upon you. What we, what we most want in American Christianity is to be all spiritual and love to worship and, and all kinds of things, but we don't want to take the yokes God has given us. All right, uh, let's move on for, uh, boy, I'm almost out of time, but I'm going to try to just say these things quick. Point E there, offense versus de defense, a critical balance. All, all I, I said this a lot in the first meeting, so I don't want to take a time out, too much time, but a lot of the pressures that come against the church today, all of us are up against this, 
is to use all of our time and resources internally. Now, I will often, when I'm first discipling someone, there's a time for every event under heaven, read Ecclesiastes 3, I will often pull them away from ministry and away from other things because I want to focus them and take them 10 times deeper than they ever knew they could go. And more clear and more understanding, I'll, I'll get them to study more, etc. But there's a time to pray and a time to say. That's never an end in itself, although it is an end in itself because God will deepen your relationship with him and deeper your understanding of his purposes in the earth and what his church is, and you'll be less going, oh, look at these Christians there. You know, you'll get focused into something that's productive. But ne nevertheless, it's in the end so that you can fish more effectively for men. There's a time to prepare to fish, That's, but that time is not forever. Come under some authority, quit running from the yokes, do some studies, uh, learn how, how to share the gospel more biblically, learn, learn how to counsel more biblically, learn how to do deliverance, whatever it takes to, to grow up into to more stability, maturity, and giftedness. But then there's a time to get out there and start fishing. And fishing is always a corporate endeavor in the Bible. Don't fish alone. Does that make sense? And so there's a, there's a time to pray and a time to say. One of the things that I most worry about is, frankly, uh, what they, in, the eight, in the 1990s, there was a, you know, what they called the worldwide worship movement that gave way in 2000 to the worldwide prayer movement. And, and that, those two movements have been big in the last 20 years. But there's been no worldwide equipping people to go out one at a time and set captives free movement. And that's what, if you stay at Grace Christian Fellowship, that's, I just want you to know, that's my goal. I want you to know the Bible so well that you can lead others to Christ. I want you to know the Bible so well that you're an expert at counseling. I want you to know the Bible so well that, uh, that God brings a damaged person into your life or a whole person in your life or wherever they're at. You can meet them where they're at and say, you want to know God deeper? Come and walk with us. That's how Jesus did it. In the, in the, you know, I always say this. The, the plan of Jesus has not been tried and found wanting. In modern times, no one's tried it. Have you ever let someone invest three and a half years in discipling you? Do you think your discipler is better than Jesus? You know what? You need to be discipled by the same people for a lot longer than three and a half years. But if you submit to that, you'll become a mighty arrow in the kingdom. Now, you might have to do a lot of unpleasant things like actually read your Bible. and other books, take the systematic theology class, and other horrors like that. You might have to spend less time on Facebook and YouTube, and you, you know, you might have to grow up. You, you, but you're never going to help anybody if you don't grow up, which may mean that you don't do as much with things that aren't that productive. You know, it's not about whether it's sinful or not. It's about whether it's effective or not. All right. 
That's the often point F. Beware of making your perspectives your reality. I'm past my time. So Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Emotions make great servants, but they make lousy masters. You have got to get enough study of scripture and enough mature Christians that you really have deep, good relationships with. And you have to get, you have to learn, like read Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. Whatever You have to get enough what's called spiritual disciplines that you learn the voice of the Holy Spirit. And, that, and through the word, the spirit, and the church, you have to get God's real perspectives, not necessarily your perspectives. You know, the serpent said to Eve, you shall be as God yourself, determining for yourself good from evil. Most Christians I know are more reliant on their own perspectives than they are on God's perspectives. But God's perspectives are truth. Jesus, you know what would help you when you read your Bible? Every time you see the word truth, write reality. Jesus is the way, the reality, and the life. Sanctify them in the reality. Your word is reality. John 17, 17. The call of being a Christian is to give up your own perspectives and to climb the mountain of God and from the holy of holies in heavenly worship, full of knowledge of God's word, seated at the Father's right hand in heavenly places, Ephesians 2, 6, to reevaluate all of reality from an eternal perspective. We're not called to, Christians are not supposed to be like mere men. Most of us are just too normal. I want you to be Abby normal. <laughs> I don't have time for the train metaphor, because it. but, you know, don't, that's the whole thing of the engine, the, the car, and the caboose. One is the facts, facts of Scripture. The other is where you're going to place your faith, and the other is your feelings. Follow the facts of Scripture. Let that become your reality. Lastly, I wish I had time, more time on this, but begin to understand God's sovereign purposes. Um, in the sense of this, um, there's all kinds of verses. I put a bunch of, look, hopefully you have your outline. Everyone look at the outline. Since I'm out of time, I'm telling you, God's going to get you no, if you don't read these verses. Take, fold this up, put it in your pocket, read these verses. You have to understand that trials are the greatest thing that ever happened. Consider, James 1, 2, consider it all joy when you encounter various temptations and trials, right? 1 Peter 4, 12, why are you surprised at the fiery ordeal that comes upon you? Romans 5, stand, your introduction into grace by which you stand. The testing of your faith produces endurance and character and so forth. I wish I could do a whole teaching just on the, the blessing of trials, but we need to get the kids up. Learn to be a thankful, grateful person. You can kind of tell how people are doing. You know, spiritually mature people are kind of in the joy all the time. They're thankful. They're grateful. They realize the grace of God acting on their behalf. They're not tossed to and fro by circumstances and emotions. Uh, if you ask them how they're doing, they're always doing well, even though, like, they're, you know, their brother just died and, you know, whatever. I mean, it, that's just life. So, 
let's uh, let's get the kids up here. But um, if I could, I, I would just beg you to memorize some of the verses that are at the on that last point about trials, and ask God to help you get a thankful, praiseful attitude where you rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Philippians four four. Memorize verses like that. You know, the best things that ever happened to me, in 1974, my little brother died very unexpectedly one day. Um, I always sit on my deck to minister to people, and I often am reminded that I was staining the deck when the phone call came to say that my other brother was just was in the process of dying and would be dead before I could get to Toledo to say hi to him. You know, that's, that's life, and those are the, you know, uh, I lost everything I worked for at one point for 17 years. It all vanished in some stupid decisions I made. And, and uh, I, But you know what? I learned more and grew more from that than any other thing. What we call a good day, like we think if we got a ticket on the way to work, that it was a bad day. But that might be God's definition of a good day. <laughs> and, and, and the fact that, you know what, over time I learned to slow down and I didn't get in car accidents anymore. <laughs> So it was a good day that I got a bunch of tickets, you know. That's, we, you know, you didn't do so well the first few weeks of your freshman year and you're getting a 2-5 and you go, oh my God, I got to really change my priorities. I'm socializing too much. I'm Facebooking too much. I'm, I, I'm not reading my Bible nor studying enough. That's a good day. Amen.